Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The GIST is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Monday, March 16th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So one of these weekends, so much news. This Durst guy, I've been doing ads for him. Do I need to disclose that? The Jinx just had everyone's jaw drop in comparing it to cereal. Although in The Jinx, I'm going to say spoiler alert, but like it's real life. So spoiler alert if you don't read the news and stuff, but okay. In The Jinx, it seems like they got this guy dead to rights. And in cereal, Adnan, still flailing in the wind, might get an appeal. What's the difference? Lots of people are writing about that. I'm going to give you my one sentence. You ready? It is easier to show that a clearly guilty man is guilty than it is to show that a probably guilty man is innocent. That's my take. You do with it what you want. What I'm really here to say is that I want to be Vlad Putin. Vlad Putin, he shows up. He's been away from public view for like 10 days. The worst they can say about him is he looks a little puffy. And all the rumors just help bolster this guy. They say he was away attending the birth of his love child. In other countries, infidelity will topple the government. Here, this supposed bastardism cements his his virility. He's losing the war in Ukraine. He's taking on economic basket cases like Crimea. He will not be balancing the budget because of the oil crisis. Yet all he does is get a massive amount of credit for not being the victim of a coup. He wins. He wins again because the stupid gossip was wrong as he said at a news conference next to the president of Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> Putin is both loathed and admired in a lot of American circles. He's an enemy for sure, but what strength, what resolve. And that Hillary Clinton, such a lack of transparency. Do you think Putin cares about a homebrew email server? He sends a raven. He's got resources. Can we please start affixing some different adjectives to this guy, like unsteady, teetering, reclusive, at least reclusive. He's always just the strong man, the half man, half bear. We tremble at the mere sight of his sharp incisors. We quake at his potency. Putin is part Kaiser Soze, part Peter Rasputin. You know, Colossus from the X-Men. He's wrapped in armor and imbued with strength. We keep saying so often that he's such a strong man. Maybe we don't even notice that he's actually weakening. On the show today, I spiel about eating out of a trash can. We play a song from They Might Be Giants. I tell you what it is, but it's like unpronounceable. But first, more song talk. Songs without titles, songs with delayed choruses, songs with no chorus. 
as the countdown continues. So let me tell you a little bit about my stand-up comedy career. I did stand-up, I was about a junior and senior in college, and it was a lot of fun. And I remember my big joke, to me, not to the audience, was talking about the Rod Stewart song, Maggie May. And I used to point out, now the years we're talking about, like say mid-90s, 95, and I used to point out that as Rod is singing this song about love with an older woman now, That the song was written in 1971. So if Maggie Mae was 40 in 1971, at the time I was telling the joke, she's probably tooling around the nursing home saying, oh, that Rod Stewart, he was a great lover. Anyway, as you can imagine, huge laughs. The joke or the observation does not work at all now because now we think of Rod Stewart as an old man tooling around a nursing home or at least still lucky to have a model wife. However, this is why I bring it up. Maggie Mae has no chorus. Did you know that? Think about the song Maggie Mae. What do you mean it has no chorus? It has no chorus. It's a story. It goes on. It has no chorus. Thunder Road has no chorus. Bohemian Rhapsody has no chorus. Nothing really matters to me. We think of great pop songs as, well, I don't know, they could be pretty different, but one thing about them is they have a chorus. No. And I suspect this used to be more of a thing than it is now. But joining me here is Chris Malamphy, who covers choruses and no choruses and the billboard charts and why is that song number one is the column he writes for slate hello chris hey how are you mike i'm well first of all let's name a few songs that have no chorus that we might not even realize have no chorus okay well you mentioned bohemian rhapsody you mentioned maggie may all along the watchtower the dylan song made famous by Jimi hendrix no chorus rapture by blondie has a refrain she says the word rapture at the end of each phrase but it's not really a full-blown chorus space oddity the song about major tom by david bowie has no real chorus it has pieces that repeat it has melody lines that repeat ground control to major tom's there's nothing you can point to and say, this is a, a piece of music that recurs, that, that puts a bow on everything, that, you know, if you were to diagram out the song, goes A, B, A, B, bridge, and then, you know, back to, to B with again. With the classic Tin Pan Alley structure with exactly. the middle eight. You've named a, n- a number of songs that are popular and that aren't even seen as, like, difficult songs to get into. It seems possible to have a really catchy song without a chorus. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you want to pick a number one hit, The Sound of Silence by uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Within the sound of silence, in restless dreams I walked alone. Has a refrain. Uh, we all know it, right? This is, an, this is an easy one to pop into your head, right? Because each phrase ends with the sound of silence. When, they, when, the, when the refrain is the title. Right, and it puts it, a bow yeah. on it. But that's an important distinction to talk about here is the difference between a refrain, which can be like a recurring line or a recurring motif, if you will, and a chorus, which is this much more well-defined thing. It doesn't have to be many lines. It could be as little as, as three lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you know, you want to talk about a song that has a chorus, think about the, the Journey song, uh, Any Way You Want It. Any way you want it, that's the way you need it. This is actually an interesting one because it leads with the chorus. Immediately yeah. it explodes. Any way you want it, that's the way you need it. Any way you want it. That's only three lines, but that counts as a chorus, right? Because right. it just keeps coming back. Whereas the sounds of si- uh, you know, to touch the sounds of silence. Within the sound of silence. It comes back and it comes back and it comes back. Of silence. 
it comes back a little different each time. It's only those few words. It's not really a full-blown chorus that is set apart from the verse melody. Are you saying that Paul Simon might be a more complex songwriter than the dudes from Journey? I might actually be saying that, yes. So am I right, though, that if you look at the current top 10, it's very rare, or even recently, it's very rare to find big hit songs without a chorus these days, given how commodified songwriting and pop songwriting has become? You're talking about like current, you know, big hits. Yeah, you know, actually, in preparation for this segment, I was looking again. I've written uh, 10 or 11 pieces for Slate's Why's the Song Number One series. All of them have traditional choruses. I'm talking about songs like Dark Horse by Katy Perry. So you want to play with magic. Or Happy by Pharrell. Or Rude by Magic. Or Shake It Off by Taylor. Pretty much and all then of the them. names of the song are all the chorus. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's another thing, by the way. I mean, there's been it's actual branding. There's been studies lately that branding has gotten harder and faster. We're 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 increasingly moving away from the days of the the bizarre title that has nothing to do whatsoever with you know the 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 refrain in the song. Right. So subterranean homesick blues therefore does everything wrong. Right. You don't know what the song is about. It has no chorus. Right. Happens to be like the greatest one of the greatest songs ever. But it, yeah. it's a great song, right? Yeah. And there's repeating melodies. Obviously, I mean, it just kind of repeats and repeats and repeats. But like you know, where the line, uh, you know, one eleven dollar bills and you only got ten. Has roughly the same melody as uh, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. That's the closest thing you have to even a refrain. It's not even the same line. It's just kind of a cadence that Dylan adopts to put a bow at the end of each line, but it's not a chorus per se. But again, that's Dylan being Dylan. But so this is you're saying there is conscious branding song titles correlate to chorus and that's the most memorable thing. I've even read stuff that more and more songs are coming with single word titles. We saw several last year. Timber by Pitbull and Kesha. Happy by Pharrell. Fancy by Iggy Azalea and Charlie XCX. Rude by Magic. You know, the simpler and the clearer. And then in terms of branding, also, where you place the chorus matters. And, you know, there are a number of songs, and this is not a recent phenomenon. You can go all the way back through the Rocky Road and Tin Pan Alley to point to this. But, you know, songs that lead with the chorus right away. A good example from the last year is uh, All About That Bass by Megan Trainer. Immediately, the very first thing you hear in the song after, you know, it opens is, I'm all about that bass, about that bass. It goes right into it. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. It doesn't make you wait for it. It's it's almost like the equivalent of the newspaper inverted pyramid paragraph or the college essay that leads with the thesis. It's right there. You know, all about that bass. It does have that little run up. You know I'm. Whereas a song like Eric Clapton's, it's in the way that you use it. Boom. Right. Boom! Straight off. (laughs) Doesn't even make you wait for it. Or think, all right, or think about Can't Buy Me Love by the Beatles, right? Like, it it literally explodes out. Can't buy me love. Like, he doesn't make you wait for it at all. Is it more satisfying to have a chorus? Is it harder to write a song without a chorus? Is it something more challenging to songwriters? Generally, if it's going to lead with the chorus, you better have a barn burner of a chorus. You know, you, you better have something like Good Times by Sheep. 
two that I love because they were both number one hits a year away from each other. And I have long thought of them as structural doppelgangers. You can literally sing one over the other, even though they're melodically different, is uh, Heaven is a Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> yeah, for uh, whatever it's worth. And yeah. You Give Love a Bad Name by Bon Jovi. Now that I've told you this, by the way, you will always hear them as virtually the same song. Like they both just jump right in with this, you know, four part chorus yeah. that just recurs and recurs and recurs. So we talked about all about that bass and in the way that you use it and can't buy me love. What's the opposite of that? It's pretty much, well, it's not hard to end with the chorus. Maybe if they end with the chorus, there's a fade out. But what about songs where they end with the title? This is a fun category because there's actually a, a small but really cool collection of songs that end with the title. Among number one hits, uh, the 1988 George Michael number one hit, One More Try, only says one more try at the very last line. He, it's almost like a sigh at the end of the song. Maybe just one more try. But at no point does he say one more try until the very last line of the song. Another one that was actually brought up on the Culture Gab Fest a week or two ago by Dana Stevens as a favorite of hers is Just Like Heaven by The Cure. Some other ones include Virginia Plain by Roxy Music. They yeah. literally say it at the very, very end. Do-do-do. Uh, yeah, yeah. What's her name? Virginia Plain. What's her name? Virginia Plain. Boom. Song, yeah. song over. Or a slightly more complex one is the Beatles here, there, and everywhere. They say the words here, there, and everywhere at different points in the song, but they don't actually say the whole title together until the very end is the song and the last droplets of brass fade out. You know, McCartney finally sings here, there, and everywhere. Chris Malamphy writes, why is this song number one? He knows about the charts. He knows all about that bass and those choruses. Thank you, Chris. You got it, Mike, anytime. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. All right, I'm going to do who's in, who's out, who's on the bubble. The topic is stamps, 2015 stamps. United States Coast Guard stamp. It's on the bubble. She got a big helicopter, modern helicopter. But then in the lower right-hand corner, got a clipper ship. Don't know what's going on there. 2015 summer harvest stamp. Watermelon. It's in. Good strength of schedule. Sweet corn. I love sweet corn. Give them it a number one seed. It's in. Cantaloupes. It's on the bubble. The seeds. The way they show the seeds on the stamp. Not very attractive. Tomatoes. I think they're just in there to round out the fruit, vegetable, equality. I say they're out, at best, a playing game. Finally, Civil War 1965 stamps, the Five Forks. The Five Forks is the last one in, take my word for it. And take my word that anything you could do at the post office, you could do right now from your desk with stamps.com. I just want it to sound official and authoritative like a bracketologist, a stampologist. But I am here to say that you could buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer, your own printer, and stamps.com never closes. So right now, you get a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer, a digital scale, up to $55 free postage. They'll tell you what a Hoya is. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. Fill out those stamps brackets accordingly. And now the spiel, a meal with limited appeal. 
Each year, this is from Gothamist, each year the USA wastes 141 trillion calories of food, much of it at the local level, like all the pulp left over from your daily green juice routine. To call attention to this sorry state of affairs and make some delicious food in the process, farm-to-table champion Dan Barber will transform his Greenwich Village restaurant, Blue Hill, into Wasted, a pop-up eatery powered by food scraps and underused items from everyday foods. To hear it described, you think that Dan Barber is making an important point. He's also taking a stance. He's putting up the reputation of his eatery. He's taking a risk. It incorporates elements of conscience, ambition, and risk. And it fails. It fails. I ate there at Wasted, the former Blue Hill. I ate there on Saturday. And my attitude going in was like the first time you eat calamari, right? Remember that first time? Maybe someone said, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just eat it. And you're like, no, you got to tell me what it is. They're like, just eat it. No, you got, okay, fine. It's squid. I don't want to eat it. Just eat it. Fine. Hey, this is good. I thought that was what was going to happen. So you go in the restaurant decor is covered up to make it look like the inside of a bag. The menu had, I have the menu here with me. They printed it out on paper, of course, then keeping with the eco-friendly theme. They had things like the dumpster dive vegetable salad, the stew of kale ribs, the ribs being the inner part of the kale that's usually thrown away, fried skate wing cartilage, which is tartar sauce infused with smoked whitefish heads. The salad was good. It was made up of the parts of the salad that are usually close to your fingers when you chop and then throw away. You don't always have to throw them away. The cartilage, look, it was edible. It tasted crunchy and fishy, but you know what it tastes like? Like when you go to an Asian market, or if you live in Asia, when you go to a market market, they sell these fish snacks, these squid snacks. They're good. They're good. They taste like squid. They taste like prawns. Here's the thing. The fried skate cartilage at Wasted slash Blue Hill was $15 a serving. The same amount of Hanami prawn crackers is about 78 cents. And then came the rack of cod. I'll read the description on that one. Rack of black cod, carrot top marmalade, fish skin, and parsley vinaigrette. So you look at it. It looks like a fish, but it mostly looks like bones. There's some fish in there. Scrape, scrape, scrape. Get a little bit of fish on the fork. Not a, not a forkful, but scrape, 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 scrape. You try it. Up, oh, got some bones. Picking out the bones. Picking out the bones. Scrape, 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 scrape. You know, you can dislodge a morsel or two. You try to eat it again, a little bit of bone in your mouth. And I look around and I guess I'm not the only one choking because it seems like everyone is sort of performing a self-Heimlich maneuver. And then I realize, no, they're just vigorously patting themselves on the back for having the high-mindedness and ethics to eat in Blue Hill slash Wasted. So you know what it's like, this whole experience where you can't even get any good mouthfuls of food? It's like, let's say you go to a fishing village in the Philippines, right? And to ingratiate yourself there, they're like, look, we send all the really good cuts of fish back to you rich Americans, but this is the stuff we eat for ourselves and it's it's just as good and you eat and you're like yeah it's just as good way to go filipinos but they don't charge you 15 bucks a plate the thing about the little tiny chunks of flesh on this fish that we were eating there at wasted slash blue hill versus the nice big meaty succulent cut that you get in a regular restaurant is the big meaty succulent cut it tastes better look lots of record collectors like to listen to albums or issues that are rarities and b-sides and outtakes i've listened to a lot of outtakes they're not bad but you know what's better than the outtakes the takes
And I don't want to read motivation too much into what Mr. Barber and Blue Hill slash Wasted were doing. Well, obviously, the motivation was good. He led with his motivation to, you know, teach us and show that you could eat this stuff. But you get one of these experiences like going to see a movie that you hate. For me, it was The Tree of Life. And it got all this critical praise. And you're really wondering if the emperor has no clothes, if no one is brave enough just to stand up and say, I'm choking on a fish bone here, people. You know where I don't choke on a fish bone? Where they give me a piece of fish that has an adequate amount of flesh on it. So you question everyone, and I look to the left of me, I look to the right of me, and everyone's nodding and saying how much they're doing to help curb the vast amount of food that's going in the garbage. I guess, wait, isn't it true we never showed up in the first place or, or ate only half as much or never went to a restaurant like Blue Hill? There'd be less stuff thrown away. All right, point made, but food, not good. The waitress was really nice. She's really nice. How's everything? First answer. It's interesting. How's everything? You know, the cod was a little impenetrable. How's everything? Listen, do you want me to tell you? Yeah, sure. No, really. Do you really want me to tell you? Like, you're really nice. I see what you're doing. Your motivations are excellent. This is a failure. This is a noble failure. It's just that what's on my plate is objectively worse than real food. This food goes in the garbage for a reason. Now, we get to a good point. What is the reason? The reason this food gets thrown in the garbage isn't that it's inedible, isn't that it's totally unfit for consumption. But you didn't have to convince me about that. The reason that it gets thrown in the garbage is that it's just a little worse than the good food. So it seems as if the people behind Wasted slash Blue Hill were trying to prove the wrong point, trying to convince me that this stuff could be eaten. No. It's not that it couldn't be eaten. It's just that it wouldn't be enjoyed as much as the good stuff. And there are celebrity chefs involved in this enterprise, right? Every day, a different celebrity chef flows through Blue Hill like uh, still edible broccoli stems flowing through the Cuisinart. I was there when the chef was Dominique Ansel, who invented the cronut, was my mouth, his penance. Also signed up are Mario Batali and Elaine Dacasse, great chefs. If you have only one chance to eat at a restaurant where Mario Batali is doing the cooking, and this is the restaurant you eat at, it's like if you have only one chance to see Michael Jordan play in person, and then when you go see him play in person, he's playing baseball. I had this idea for another statement restaurant that Blue Hill could make. Why not open a restaurant to the left of Blue Hill, right? And make sure all the people dining uh, get, get a full checkup so they're really healthy. And then all the stuff that they leave over, the regular good food that Blue Hill usually serves, I'll eat the rest of it. We'll be the restaurant to the left of Blue Hill. It'll be the leftover hill. And that'll be much better than the ethical garbage they were offering at Wasted. Again. The staff was wonderful. They gave me all these demonstrations about how the food is made. They gave, when I complained a little bit, they gave me extra dessert, which I wasn't into because it was garbage. They gave me an extra entree, which was so nice of them. It was still garbage. I give this restaurant five stars for service, five stars for ambition, and three green Muppets in a garbage can for execution. Now excuse me while I, like a billy goat, munch on this leftover sardine container. You know, there's still real fish juice in here, and the aluminum gives it a tangy kick. And that's it for today's show. The Gist intern is Claire Tennisgetter. She's young. She's not an old dry-aged beef end, which are the hard exterior layers of dry-aged beef that are discarded. Then you have Andrea Salenzi, the producer of The Gist, kind of young. We call her an immature egg. Immature eggs are unlaid eggs that are sometimes discovered in the oviducts of slaughtered laying hens. See cold chicken. Okay, I will. 
cold chicken. Our name for managing producer Joel Meyer. Cold chicken, elderly laying hens that are removed from a flock due to low egg production. Most end up in pet food due to the perceived poor quality of their meat. Which brings us to dog food. Our loving nickname for executive producer Andy Bowers. Dog food is a meatloaf inspired by neighborhood butcher Dixon's Farm Stand Meats which funnels its unsellable offal cuts into dog food, we added the meat of a seven-year-old dairy cow. That's the gist. The dumpster dive salad, a selection of vegetable scrap stalks and outer leaves salvaged from the waste stream of a large-scale food processor of podcasts. And now it's They Might Be Giants with a song that is all but unpronounceable. In fact, it is unpronounceable. They might be Giants. Dial a song number is 844-387-6962. If you don't want to dial that number, don't, because it's the gist. It's a Monday. It's a new They Might Be Giants song. It's unpronounceable. you 